Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Teshalach, Ruacha Yebareun, Utahadesh Pene Hadama. Dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, and Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia. Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, declares God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens 
in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Let's begin in prayer, please. Lord, we give you thanks. Lord, we give you praise. Lord, we give you glory, Lord, for this day. Lord God, thank you for calling us out of our beds this morning. Lord, thank you for calling us into the worship of your gathered bride here at Christ Community Church. Lord, we thank you for our worship so far this morning. Lord, we thank you, Father, for meeting us in worship. We thank you for pouring out your spirit upon us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the songs and for the liturgy, Lord. We thank you, Father, for the different languages we heard this morning, Lord, just to give us a brief illustration of what was experienced on that first Pentecost. And so, Lord, as we continue to discuss your word this morning, Lord, as we open up your your scriptures, Lord, that you have inspired and preserved for us, Lord, we pray, God, that you would pour out your spirit even more upon us today. Lord, we pray, God, that you would open up our hearts, Lord, and our minds and our ears, Lord, to hear and to believe and to understand. And Lord, we pray, God, that you would be honored by our worship, Lord, that you would be honored by our words, and Lord, you would be honored by our discussion and the proclamation of your word. And we pray and ask all of these things in the name of the risen Christ. Amen. Well, um, I'm actually going to be preaching out of a different text. So we get to go old school, and I have to ask you all to open your Bibles. Or, if you're all fancy and you have a device, uh, make your way, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I will begin reading there at the second half of verse 3. And since you are opening your Bibles, I will say this again later in my notes, but I'll go ahead and you can turn there after we're done reading and make your way also to a few other places in the Old Testament where we will be referencing later. So we will be in Numbers 11, Ezekiel 36, and Joel chapter 2, which is actually in your bulletins, so you can just use that if you would desire. But I'll give those to you again later. So go ahead and make your way to 1 Corinthians 12. And I will begin in the second part of verse 3. And Paul writes to the church in Corinth here and he says, No one can say that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one 
and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Well, I want to begin this morning, the actual sermon time, by thanking both Walton and Chris for preach, filling in the preaching role while sharing an hour out of town. Right? Uh, we enjoyed our vacation, and we appreciate you all praying for us. But um, I've listened to both sermons already. I still have to catch up on Sunday school, but I will. Um, but I can say, obviously, and I think you would all probably agree with me, uh, that we, have, we are blessed with great teaching here at Christ Community Church. Uh, we're also blessed with great tenacity in teaching, as Chris de- demonstrated uh, by his poor throat last week. So thank you both for your faithfulness and also for your teaching and your work. But Sharon and I, uh, obviously we had a great time, but we're glad to be back uh, as part of worship and community and fellowship with you all. So with that said, though, let's dive in. So what Paul outlines here in this text really is just one of the many implications of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And there are quite a few others. I'll just list some of them briefly, just for the sake of argument. And we've actually seen them in our liturgy and in our singing this morning. So other implications of the Holy Spirit being poured out include the sealing of the believer in Christ. It includes the assurance of our eternal lives in Christ with God. The Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts and calls us to repentance. The Spirit being poured out, part of His work is what some of us might call renewals or revivals or awakenings. The illuminating of Scripture for our understanding and for our belief and for our sanctification. These are all works of the Holy Spirit. These are just a few implications of the pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost. But as it relates to the text that we just read here in 1 Corinthians 12... I'd like to actually ask a few questions that, at least that were coming to my mind during preparation, that I believe Paul really helps us to answer by the words he lays out here. And so some of these questions are things like this. Do you feel inadequate in your life and walk with Christ? Do you feel inadequate, especially as it comes to the spiritual gifts? Do you feel as though maybe you don't even have a spiritual gift? Do you feel like God maybe isn't using you, or he isn't moving like you would like him to move? Or, frankly, he just isn't showing himself to you like you are praying for and desiring for? These are a few questions that came to mind as I was looking at this, but I know most of you around the room fairly well at this point, and so I know that the answers to those questions would vary depending on the person and where things are in life, right? So some of you are perfectly and happily content in the Lord. And that's a reason to praise God, right? I am good where I am in Christ, and that's wonderful. Some are frustrated, and they want to see God doing more, but they also want to be a part of it. And that's absolutely understandable, right? We, life is hard, and life is frustrating. And so it's more than okay to want to see God move, and it's more than okay to want to be used by Him. Some of you don't have a clue in the world as to what God desires. 
and you're simply just trying to stay faithful and trying to stay obedient, that's a great place to be. Just be obedient. And some of you feel like you don't have anything in the area of spiritual gifts or service, as Paul writes here, or maybe even faith, depending on how the day is going. And you might even feel that God just doesn't even want you at all. But the answer to all of these varied questions that really is at the foundation of all of these questions is that Pentecost really does change everything for the people of God. Because Pentecost changes our assumptions on how God is going to work. And questions such as these, what they do is they display that our assumptions and that our motives are immediately and completely focused on us as individuals. Now, we rightly want to know how each text of Scripture applies to us and how we are to believe it and how we are to live it and how we are to share it. But notice what Paul is stressing in this text. And we'll see this played out, really, in every other text we will look at this morning. What Paul is stressing here is that the work of the Holy Spirit, as he does indeed indwell each believer in Christ individually, and as he gifts us individually, the work of the Holy Spirit is to unify us together as one body in Christ. That's his work. Now, this does not negate our individuality. right? God wants you, person, but... Nor does it negate, frankly, your uniqueness, right? I mean, some people in here are gifted in different ways. Some are way more talented in music than I could ever hope to be. Some can hold a tune better than I could ever hope to hold one. Some have the gifting of learning multiple languages at once. I'm looking at multiple people in the room, right? So this does not negate our individuality. It doesn't negate, doesn't negate our uniqueness, nor does it negate our diverse giftings or the diverse ministries that the Spirit has given us, but... Rather, what the Holy Spirit does is to bring unity within our diversity of gifts. And so usually the, 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 the temptation here with this passage is, is for the other passages that list the spiritual gifts, because this is not an exhaustive list. The temptation here is to try to say, you know what, let's do a sermon and a message on each spiritual gift and what they are and what that looks like. I don't want to do that, right? I'm not saying that's a bad way to approach this text. It's a perfectly fine way to approach this text, but that's not what I want to do. So instead, what I want to do, instead of giving you a spiritual gifts test, <laughs> the goal this morning would be, I just want to understand why, why did Paul write this? Why did the Spirit inspire him to write this? And how are these diverse gifts, these diverse acts of service, these diverse activities, these diverse roles, how... How are they to be viewed? And how are they to be understood? And frankly, how are they to be used? And to do this well, because I can't help myself, and you all know me well enough at this point to know I'm going to do this, we've got to do some contextual setup, right? I've got to be, I've got to be that guy that says, we need to look at some stuff to know why Paul wrote this. Right? On Wednesday nights, right now, we're taking a, a brief brief hiatus for a couple of weeks from Craig's study in Genesis and looking at methods of interpretation of Scripture by going back over those chapters that we've looked at that Craig has already led us through. And in those discussions, we, uh, I've mentioned and we've talked about how we, we cannot arrive at a proper godly application of Scripture, what we are to do with it, 
without first allowing the Bible to speak for itself, right? Let the Bible speak for itself. Let Scripture interpret itself. So, what's going on here in 1 Corinthians 12? There's two points of context that I want to clear up. One is a Corinthian context, right? So what's going on in the church in Corinth? And the other is what's called a biblical or whole Bible context, right? So this is why I had you find those other passages. But again, I'll give them to you again in a minute. So first, let's start small and local, and let's look at the church in Corinth. What could have possibly led Paul to not only writing this whole letter, but also to make these comments that he makes here in chapter 12? Well, if you don't know, I'm going to tell you, right? If, when Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians, this church was, to put it nicely as I can, right? this church was a stinky hot mess, right? There's no, there's no other way of putting that without being inappropriate, right? Because it was, it was in a bad place. I don't mean inappropriate. Anyway, so, but let me just highlight. I'm going to use my translation, which is the ESV, and just look at some of the headings to give you an idea of just how much of a mess this church was in, right? But also to give you the idea of the disunity that's happening within this church. So, starting just in chapter 1 and making our way to chapter 12, the heading divisions in the church appears twice within the first three chapters. Now, these divisions were over multiple reasons. One was over who baptized who, right? In chapter 1, Paul is saying, look, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you except maybe these couple of guys, right? Because they were saying, well, I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by Apollos. They were making this great issue out of who actually dunked them under the water or sprinkled them or poured them or however mode they went through as if the performer could negate the actual ordinance and sacrament, right? But then the other issue of division that appears in chapter 3 is over whose teaching one followed, as if their teaching varied, right? Well, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Well, that's great, but I follow Jesus. Right? They, were being, they were being very snotty about it, right? So that appears twice in the first three chapters. In chapters 5 and 6, the heading sexual immorality appears. And a couple of specific issues fall under this. One was with a man who was having relations with his stepmother. Now... In this culture and in many cultures, even though he is not blood-related to his stepmother, this is considered incest, right? Now, past that, anyone under a certain age, I will let parents, sorry parents, handle this that are in the room. But this is one issue. And the reason that this was an issue of disunity was because there was, there was not an agreement in the church in Corinth on how to handle this issue. Now, most of us in the room, uh, we've read, you know, 1 Corinthians, we've been Christians for a long time, and so we're like, well, we know how to handle that issue, but... They did not know what to do to handle this issue. And most of them were perfectly content to just shrug it off as if it was not an issue at all. They were just going to ignore it. If I ignore the problem, maybe it'll go away, right? While at the same time, the other issue of sexual immorality in this church was that some were continuing themselves to live sexually promiscuous lives by continuing to sleep with the cult temple prostitutes because that was just part of the pagan ritual worship of their culture. So there's some disunity in how to handle sexual misbehavior. There was also disunity in marriages throughout the church, either because of sexual issues or the issue of whether or not a spouse was a believer. And so the believing spouse was questioning whether or not they should divorce that spouse. And so Paul handles this in chapter 7. There was disunity because some church members were taking others to court and suing them. That 
that's going to bring a little bit of an issue, right? If you're trying to come and worship and come to the table together every week, right? Well, you know, you're suing me. Speaking of the table, there was disunity at the Eucharist table because many of the wealthier members of the church who could come early, right, because they didn't have to go to work, they were coming and they were mistreating the Eucharist by gorging themselves on the food that was brought because they would have basically potlucks every week, right? They, they would have these things they called love feasts, and it included the Eucharist elements, but they would, they would eat together as a community. So the, so the wealthier would come and they would eat all the food, and so the poorer people of the community would show up and they would have no food. They would be hungry, right? They've worked all morning until worship time. They're going to go back to work afterwards because they have to work, and there's nothing to eat. So that's one part of the problem at the table. The other part was that some of them were getting absolutely drunk on the communion wine. Right? That's an issue. And finally, leading up to this text, there was a disunity because of certain assumptions within this church that some spiritual gifts were greater gifts than others. Now remember, Pentecost, it changes our assumptions. It, it flips our assumptions on their heads. So keep that in mind. The Corinthians had not considered that just because one person has the ability to teach, I'm just going to point around the room, right? Did not make that person greater than the one who has the ability to heal or the one who has this gifting of faith or the one who could speak in tongues. And vice versa. Those can work any direction. And the issue in Corinth was that they all thought, especially that, well, I can speak in tongues and you cannot, so therefore I'm a greater Christian. Now, Paul goes on to, to display this in chapters 13 and 14 and calls this even a clanging symbol if I don't have love. Right? But the Corinthian church, they really never learned their lesson for the most part. Now, 2 Corinthians is a little better than 1 Corinthians, but by the late 1st century, so in the 90s of the 1st century, they had once again been thrown into disunity because many of the younger members of the church had actually forcibly removed their leaders and their elders and the older people in the community, right? Some of those people that had been thrown out were no doubt probably part of this church that had learned these lessons from Paul 30-some-odd years, 40-some-odd years earlier. And so Clement of Rome, who was the bishop of Rome, writes his own letter to the church in Corinth. It's called First Clement. You can find it free online. It is full of nothing but scriptural references, but it's great, and it's super long. But he writes this in the beginning regarding this issue. He says this, now, in turning our attention to the matters of dispute among you, that is to say, this abominable and unholy schism, so this disunity, he says, which is completely alien and foreign to those who are to be called by God, which a few rash and self-willed individuals have kindled into such a frenzy that your good name has come to be seriously maligned. The church in Corinth was completely divided. They, were, they had no unity among themselves. And they obviously, 40 years later, had the issue again. So that's the Corinthian context. That's what's going on when Paul writes this letter. But now, let's, let's consider briefly the whole Bible. Right? What, what informs Paul's instructions here? So we talk a lot, and we rightly talk a lot here at Christ Community Church, about the Christological or the Christ-focused interpretation of Scripture. And we should do that because... As we've discussed multiple times, Jesus has told us to look at the Bible that way. We see it in Luke, 20, uh, Luke 24, 27 and Luke 24, 44. He tells us, read the Bible with me in mind, right? 
But, we, but here, especially, we need to do a bit of what's called pneumatological or Holy Spirit-focused interpretation of Scripture. So this is where many of the lectionary that we use, other readings that, that are in that lectionary, can come in handy. So, if you will, turn with me to Numbers 11, and that's where we will begin. And we read this. So these passages, Paul, being a Pharisee, would have known these passages, right? These would have been not only in his mind, but now as a believer in Christ, even more so in his heart, as he is trying to handle this disunity in the Corinthian church. And so starting in verse 24 of Numbers 11, we read this. So Moses went out and told the people the words of Yahweh, and he gathered 70 men of, of the elders and the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on Moses and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now, just a few more verses. Now, two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran to, and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to them, and Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. All right? So, again, it's Pentecost. Keep that in mind, right? We see this aspect of the Spirit of God being put on all of God's people that Moses, frankly, desires to happen. And so then we make our way to Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 22, where God says through the prophet Ezekiel, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God. When, you go, when, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So now God promising to put his spirit within the hearts of all of his people. And then we come to Joel chapter 2, which again is in your bulletin because Peter quotes this exact passage on the day of Pentecost. And we read starting in verse 28. And it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. 
the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, turning now then back to 1 Corinthians, we read again. Now concerning the spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed, but there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are a variety of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. And all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So notice that just like sexual immorality... Just like divorce, just like the Eucharist and lawsuits and who baptized who and whose teaching someone is following, now the gifts and the services and the activities given to the church by the Spirit of God is just another one in a long line of many issues that's dividing and bringing disunity to this church. But let's ask the hard question before we look at just a couple of small details in these verses. Are we really any different this many years later? Do we not consider ourselves superior based upon one gift or one ministry or one activity that our church has over others? Whether that be displayed among our own congregation or even among our sister churches. Well, you know, our church has this gift and our church has that gift. And you're not doing this right and you're not doing this well. You should do it like us. Remember, one of the many implications of Pentecost is that the Holy Spirit Spirit brings unity within the diversity of gifts to the entire church. And so just like Corinth, and whether that be in A.D. 53, 54, 55, whichever year it was that Paul wrote this, one of the many problems in the church today is disunity. And that's really why healthy ecumenicism is so difficult among the churches, right? If we... If we truly desire a movement of the Holy Spirit, then we need to be unified, not only in our devotion to Christ, but also through the diverse gifts and services and activities that the Spirit has chosen to empower us by His sovereignty and by His wisdom. And so in that spirit of unity among the bride of Christ, I just want to draw our attention to three key points, and then we are going to come to the table in unity as Christ Community Church. And so first, although next week is Trinity Sunday, our readings over the last few weeks have really been guiding us in that direction. And so our text this morning is really no different. And so notice here that these giftings, these services, these activities, while rightly labeled as the spiritual gifts, they are holy and completely Trinitarian. Listen again to verses 4, 5, and 6. He says, now there are, a, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are, there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Again, there's, there's another natural tendency in this passage here to take these three verses and to try to divide up these works of God 
that Paul mentions. But notice, Paul's focus is not on the differences between the gifts and the services and the activities. Because really, at the end of the day, especially for Corinth, it's those differences that are causing this disunity. It's causing this disruption in them being a faithful church. No, Paul's focus is on the source of the gifts themselves. So instead, the more important point that he's trying to draw our attention to is that the rich variety of the spiritual gifts reflects the nature of God himself. Because it is the same God who distributes a diversity of gifts to the entire church. One commentator writes here, he says this, he says, we would fare well to include a more Trinitarian focus in our discussions of the gifts. That includes not only the person of the Holy Spirit, but also the Lordship of Christ and the Father who works all in all. Paul's intention here is to broaden our understanding of what it means to be truly spiritual. And Paul's desire is that our attention is always and consistently placed upon the source of the gifts, which is our triune God. Every spiritual gift is poured out from the same source, the same Father, the same Christ, and the same Spirit. And because of this eternal truth, no believer is greater than another simply because they are gifted in different ways or in multiple ways. And that's Paul's point. The triune God, the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus, and God the Father empowers the gifts in each and every Christian. Yes, there are diverse gifts, but they have the same source. Second, and just as importantly, every gift, every service, and every activity is given by our triune God for the good of the whole church. So in verse 7, Paul says this, To each, speaking of these things, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. If you're like me and you like to underline in your Bible, I think that's a great little phrase to underline, right? For the common good. This verse really is the thesis for the entirety of chapter 12. This is his whole point. And especially as he gets into the gifts and all these issues of disunity, he's saying, look, these things are for the good of the whole. I like how, and I know I'm going to get a a little ribbing for this, I like how the message puts this, because I think it's really helpful. Eugene Peterson writes it this way in the message. He says, each person is given something to do that shows who God is. Everyone gets in on it, and everyone benefits. I think that's a great paraphrase. But really, the way he does that, uh, that Peterson does that, it really helps us to see that the purpose for the diversity of the gifts is for the building up of the church. It's not for the building up of our egos or the building up of our pride. It's for the good of the whole church. Meaning... Don't be selfish with your gift in the way God has gifted you, but also don't be jealous that someone else is gifted differently. The spiritual gifts are always given to be used in a way to edify the whole body of believers. One commentator writes here, he says, a schismatic individualism contradicts the purpose of the spiritual gifts. And then Basil of Caesarea, writing in the late 300s, he he puts it actually a little bit more plainly than the more modern guy that I just read. Basil says this, he says, no one has the capacity to receive all the gifts. So, when one is living in community with other believers, the grace privately bestowed upon each individual becomes the common possession of all. 
Note the unity and the diversity that he's stressing here. But he goes on, he says, One who receives any of these gifts does not possess it for his own sake, but rather for the sake of all. Meaning, your gift isn't yours. It's been given to you to use for the glorification of God and for the building of the church. And because of the intense disunity in the Corinthian church, Paul insists here that all spiritual gifts and services and activities are to be understood to be used for the good of the whole church, not to establish a hierarchy of the gifts in order to serve selfish ambition or, frankly, even self-congratulation. But then third and finally, and really as a point of application, if I have to give that, right, both individual application and corporate application, Paul tells us here that every gift and every service and every activity is given by God for the good of the church and for the unity of the whole church. And so he says this in those last two verses, starting in verse 12. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Here's another great place to start underlining if you'd like to underline in your Bible. Paul uses the word one five times in these two verses. And that may seem like a pointless point, but anytime anything is repeated like that so close together in Scripture, it probably means you should pay attention to it. And so combining this then with, frankly, verses 4 through 11, where Paul seven times stresses that the gifts come from the same source, we can make a few bold and very obvious proclamations. First, God desires that his people be unified just as the Trinity is unified. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prayed this. He said, I am not asking for these only, speaking of the disciples that were with him at the time. Right? I'm not asking for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words, meaning you and me. And that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So notice what Jesus tells us. We can actually build on that first proclamation. God desires for us to be unified just as he is unified in Trinity, but we can actually build on that based on what Jesus says in John 17. So here's, here's two more. The unity of the church proclaims the unity of the Godhead. That's one. When a church is disunified, what does it tell the world about the God that we worship and serve? But here's a second one. The unity of the church proclaims the truth and the reality of the gospel itself. Again, what are we proclaiming about Christ and his death and his resurrection when we're suing one another? Or when we're letting a brother have an incestuous relationship with his stepmother? Or when we're not rightly condemning sin, or when we are excluding people that should not be excluded. And verse 13 of this text explains to us that each of us who have put faith in Christ, we have been baptized into the body of Christ by or in, depending on the translation you have, by or in the one Holy Spirit. And we were all made to drink of the same one Spirit. 
So regardless of our backgrounds, regardless of our heritage, regardless of our nationality or our skin color or our language, all who believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for a hope for eternal salvation, we have all been baptized into Christ and into the body of Christ by drinking of the same Holy Spirit. And that's the point we are to glean from this text, this Pentecost, is that by the pouring out of the Spirit upon each of us as believers in Christ, by our baptisms within that same Spirit, we are all one body and we are all holy in Christ. And we are also all universal in faith, meaning that we hold to the teaching of the apostles and their proclamation of Christ and their proclamation of the gospel and Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead. And we are to be unified in order to proclaim these unified and eternal truths to the world. So really the questions then here are, are both individually and corporately then is this. How are we really using the gifts that we have each been given individually? But how are we using them for the building up of and the common good of one another, but also one another's gifts and for the greater church? And so as we prepare to come to the table and as we come as a unified body, where has the Spirit given you a gift to, to work for the common good of the church? Then you use that gift. Right? And, and use it boldly. But just as boldly, realize that your gifting may not be someone else's gifting. So instead, use your gift in order to proclaim the truth of the gospel and the reality of the triune God, but also for the building up of one another's gifts, for the unification of the body of Christ. And as the psalmist writes in Psalm 133, how wonderful and how beautiful when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. He says it's like, Costly anointing oil flowing down both head and beard, flowing down Aaron's beard and flowing down the collar of his priestly robes. It's like the dew on Mount Hermon flowing down from the slopes of Zion. And that's where Yahweh commands the blessing and ordains eternal life.